0: Hey, what's up everyone? My name is Adam Hoskins and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by reaching and enabling people of all ages and nations to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ.
1: Come on, let's listen close. and Let's prepare our hearts for what we're about to hear. Momentum is about movement. It's taking a step into godly purpose investing ourselves into the kingdom, taking the momentary to eternity. It's something to be gained. It's a turning motion to shift, but always shifting forward. It's transforming. Our stories, unfolding into a new yet familiar adventure. It's like holding a memento while recognizing the hand of the artist in all the new things in unlikely places saying what God's done before will happen again, but it won't look like what we're used to. It's a surprising plan only God could create. It feels like revival. It feels like anticipation. And it looks like His invitation. And we accept. So let us hang on with holy expectation and know that God is calling us to greater things. We just have to say yes.
0: Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. Welcome back to the book of Acts. Uh, I shared with you a few weeks ago that um, my wife and I, my family, moved into a new house. And one of the things that came with the house was a pool. Now, I'm not a pool person. I didn't want a pool. I didn't desire a pool, but it was part of it, which is fine. And um, I've had to learn, well, basically everything about pools. I've never had this experience before. And our pool is in a place where it's surrounded by basically 20 very large old trees. So in the summertime, it's epic. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. You're in the water. You look up. You see all these leaves and the sun and the blue sky. But no one told me about fall. And one billion leaves falling and trying to keep your pool clean. Now, of course, you have to get it closed. I didn't know when you were supposed to close it, so it's not closed soon enough. And then, of course, they canceled because there was rain. I don't know what that has to do with it. So what's happened over the last, basically, month is between one and three times a day, uh, when I am home, I am down in the pool literally cleaning out tens of thousands of leaves, trying to keep the pool clean and, and okay and functioning so we can close it well. And what, of course, I've also learned is if you don't clean out leaves, then they get stuck in this thing called a filter. And when the filter's overflowing with leaves, it gets clogged. And then there's actual you no know, water going across into the system, which, of course, if you don't watch, can blow your whole system. Wonderful. And so, again, I've learned this new spiritual rhythm and discipline of cleaning out thousands of leaves to keep the pool functioning until it's closed well. Okay, here's why I'm sharing this. I want this in your mind as we go through this next part of the history of God's people during this very unique period, and this idea of continually having to clean something out so it continues to be okay and doesn't break. Now, we're in this very unique period in the book of Acts, and It actually is a time of unusual works of God. Now, in 2011, when this church experienced an unusual move of God, we came up with three words used in church history to help us understand how to identify why this isn't normal. And we used three words. We used renewal, we used revival, and we used awakening. And those three things mean different things. Renewal is when one Christian suddenly basically falls in love with Jesus again. Uh, They move from lukewarmness or distraction or apathy, and there's just a deep, overwhelming love of Jesus again. It's like a personal revival. The things of God matter more. It's just, it's amazing. Revival is when God sovereignly shows up across a whole church, pours out his spirit, sin is confessed, people are reconciled, and the presence of the spirit is overwhelming, and usually a lot of actually somewhat strange things take place. That's church-wide. Awakening is when revival spills out beyond the church into an unbelieving community. And there are mass conversions, 10, hundreds, thousands from other faiths or no faith at all. And actual society is changed because of the unusual presence of God. Now, we as a church right now are not in a revival-like moment or an awakening-like moment. You might actually be having a personal renewal moment, but corporately, we're not here. We have been here But we're not here right now. But as we enter back into Acts, the early church, this snapshot, this season, this moment, they are experiencing renewal, revival, and awakening. And it's amazing. When you read through the book of Acts, there are multiple words that you could probably use to describe it. Uh, Active. Expanding, barrier breaking, supernatural, life change, theology shaping, suffering, persecution, jailing, betrayal, hope, question, doubt, monumental advance, powerful, all in one bucket. Now, it's interesting as we get now into Acts 6, because then we start having to ask questions like, what would it be like to live during a move of God? Not just a week, maybe a month or longer. What does it mean to actually live? during a real move of God and, and this passage helps us see the what, the where, the who, the why, the how, everything. Basically, what we're wrestling with as we go through Acts is what happens on the ground when you move from 100 people to 1,000 people to 5,000 to 10,000? What would it mean personally? What does it mean for structure or size or roles or leadership or spiritual gifts? It's one thing to read historically, but an unusual move of God in history, the Bible or church history that is. It's another to live in it, and it's another thing to serve in it, and it's a whole other thing to lead through it. The great danger found in every generation of Christians, including us sitting at Sanctus Church in 2023, is a lot of times when we read scripture or we read church history, we almost read it like a comic book where this happened, then this happened, and this happened, and we missed all the gaps in the middle. And it also seems all epic and amazing. It's almost like that old phrase. It's like seeing it through rose-colored lenses. I mean, God's spirit is so powerful, right? And everything's amazing and there are signs and wonders and thousands are coming to Jesus and people are being baptized and the poor are being taken care of and everyone loves each other and barriers that have been held and formed for thousands of years are being broken and swept aside. Everything just would have been like so incredible to live it. Well, yeah and no. In the middle of God's greatest moves in scripture and in church history and even in our own church's history, well, God is doing the most profound things, there is a lot to work out. You have to keep, ready, getting the leaves out of the pool so the pool is clean and does not break. Every move of God feels brackish to me. You're like, John, what in the world does brackish mean? Brackish is an English word, and it's about water. It's when salt water and spring water meet together in a middle point. It's not purely sweet, and it's not bitter and totally salty. It's this weird in-between. Every move of God has sweet water and bitter water and brackish water. So, okay, let's just do this. Maybe this is your first time with us, or you haven't been with us during the series. So let's just do this quick review of all the profound moves of God so far. Week one, uh, we did this. Jesus is risen from the dead. He's overcome all the enemies, sin, death, the demonic. He's now turned everyday broken, sinful people into saved people. He, he actually says something more. He says that you're going to walk in and have the same power that I walked under and had for three years. This is what he said, Acts 1.8. Remember, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit lightens upon you. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to declare who I am in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, which by the way, is shocking. We'll find out about this later. I mean, these people were hated by Jews and then, of course, to the ends of the earth. So 150-plus people, so Jesus' mom, a few of his half-brothers, some other family members, and disciples, they gather, they pray, they wonder, and then just like Jesus said, the Holy Spirit is shockingly poured out, the church is born, the Holy Spirit is given to men and women, they all start declaring Jesus actually from of Nazareth is Messiah, he's Lord, he's Savior, fire from heaven, and in that moment Peter stands, because it's in Jerusalem during Pentecost where there are hundreds of thousands of Orthodox Jews from the whole known world gathering to worship, he steps out on a side street and he begins to preach. And he says this in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus the Messiah for the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit the promise is for you, oh, and your kids, and for all who are far away, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Those who accepted his message were baptized. 3,000 were added to their number day one. So within 12 to 14 hours, the church grows from 150 to 3,000 in one day. And we know it's not just emotional or just a flash in the pan or I raised my hand but didn't re- really believe. Because the weeks and months that follow are astounding. They are revivalistic. They even become awakening-like. Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, scripture, to fellowship, that is Christian community, breaking of bread, communion, Eucharist, right? To prayer. They were filled with awe at the many wonders and signs being performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give any person who had need. They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And God kept adding to their number daily those who were becoming Christians, believing Jesus is the Messiah, being saved. So you got devotion to scripture and teaching and fellowship and prayer and communion and the presence of God and miracles and large worship gatherings and small worship gatherings and sacrifice and a community transformed. And God just keeps bringing more people to faith. By the time we got to Acts 4 a few weeks ago, it says in verse 4, many who heard the message believed in the number of men who grew to around 5,000. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, that didn't include the kids and the the women. So now the church is over 10,000 people. And so it's exponentially growing. It's incredible. And yet, in the middle of it, trouble begins to show up. Peter and John, remember we talked about this? are dragged before the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. They're forbidden to heal in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. They're forbidden to preach in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. They spent a night in jail. They're threatened with more. And they refuse to obey. And then the pattern of renewal and revival and awakening is repeated again. Ange spoke about this, I think, three Sundays ago. The church gathers after they've been told to shut up and stop And then they pray this really bold prayer. I talked about it last week. Ange preached on it the week before, Acts 4.29. They pray this. Now, Lord, consider their threats. God, look. (laughs) God, listen. See them. Look at these people. Look at the leaders. Listen to what they're saying. Look at the forces behind them, that blind them and inspire them to hate your son, Jesus, and hate us. Oh, God, that sees all, knows all, and is ever-present. Would you attune your ears and, and move your eyes to look just at those people who are threatening us? Well, that's a scary prayer. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Oh, and then they pray this, enable your servants to speak your word with great Boldness, empower us by the Spirit, give us courage that's beyond personality, courage beyond comfort. Help us to invite people to courageously speak about Jesus of Nazareth, his work, his call, his will. Help us to proclaim there's no other name given to heaven in which you can be saved. But more than that, they pray this, verse 30, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Not just preaching, we want more miracles. And like I shared last week, remember, Peter and John are taken to jail and they got in trouble with the authorities because they healed a man in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now they say, oh, help us to heal more. In other words, the powerful prayer prayer here is this. We want more trouble, not less trouble. Actually, through your church, Jesus, through your spirit, heal and deliver more people, Not safe, not our safety, Lord, Not our personal protection, Lord. Your kingdom, please. Your kingdom, please. Your kingdom, please. Well, at that moment, the Holy Spirit shows up again in great power. And another season, or you can think about it like a wave. A wave came in in Acts 2 and sort of went out. This is the next big wave coming in. After they prayed, verse 31, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So it's like another wave, another earthquake, and the result of this grand, bold prayer is renewal and revival again. And it spills over again into awakening to many people who did not want Jesus and end up meeting him. Now, the result of this prayer, again, is everything that a church would want to be. Acts chapter 2 is repeated in Acts chapter 4 after the Holy Spirit's poured out again. Verse 32 in chapter 4. All the believers had were of one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. They shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them, there was no needy person among them. So God answers their prayers, produces a church that's, we said this last week, right, doing community biblically, worshiping passionately, serving radically, giving joyfully, giving sacrificially, praying expectantly, inviting and preaching courageously, joy, generosity, excitement, obedience. There's not a needy person among them. One heart, one mind. Okay. And then we came last week to the reality check that during moves of God, that are real and legitimate and awesome and epic and wonderful, there's always mixed water. The sweet is there, the bitter is there, and the brackish is there. And this is why you need to stop and again say, wow, it takes a lot of work to get all the leaves out so the thing that actually brings the enjoyment doesn't get clogged or broken. We started to see last week when we were in Acts 5, in the middle of moves of God, things on the ground can unravel. Like I shared last week, during Moves of God, there are always two other forces in the exact same place, in the exact same environment, exactly at the same time. The Holy Spirit's doing His incredible stuff, and the demonic are doing their unholy stuff, and our sin is still in the building. So last week, we talked about how the demonic showed up trying to literally abort and kill the move of God, kill the church from the inside by getting a foothold. That was Acts chapter 5. Now, as we get to Acts chapter 6, Things are still epic and amazing and incredible, actually more incredible after the Ananias and Sapphira moment. But now the other shadow shows up, sin. And the sin that's experienced here during this move of God, this sinful clash between Christians, is rooted in pain, anger, hate, and, oh, ready, everyone? Ethnic racial bias. Hmm. Acts 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, Okay, things have not slowed down. They've ramped up. More and more and more people keep becoming followers of Jesus. More people, more groups, larger gatherings, more baptisms, more stories, more of the kingdom of God. And and, uh, never forget this. Behind every single stat is a person. And their person, that person is a real encounter story with Jesus. In the middle of this ever-increasing, ever-amazing moment, There's trouble, lots and lots of trouble. Just keep reading. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them started complaining. Don't forget that word complaining in a minute. Against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now you've got two groups and they're all genuine followers of Jesus, all saved, and they don't like each other. Both are Jewish historically, in the large sense of ethnic, but actually they're profoundly different groups. One's Hellenistic, the other's Hebraic. Now the Hellenists were Jews that spoke Greek, attended synagogues that spoke Greek, while the other ones attended synagogues that spoke Aramaic and Hebrew. Most of the Hellenistic Jews didn't live in and around Jerusalem or in the classic promised land. They were Jewish communities that lived all over the world, Spain, Rome, Alexandria, everywhere. And so they came from the known world here. And then you've got the other community that lived full-time in and around Jerusalem within the classic, of course, promised land. Paul, of course, is a classic example of a Hellenistic Jew. So you've got language barriers. They actually don't speak each other's language. And you have profound social tension and here's why. Because the Hebraic Aramaic Jews thought they were real Jews and actually more faithful, and the other group, not so much. In other words, we're the original, and you're nothing but the bad, terrible photocopy. And though they share sort of common blood, there's a lot of distance between them. And it's more, it's taking place on the, on the, on the Hebraic Jewish home turf. So the other people that come don't have family support, extended family. Again, we miss this in 2023. Many, many Jews, but especially Hellenistic Jews that were older, were older would come and prepare to have their retirement and then die in Jerusalem because they wanted to be buried in Jerusalem so they would be the first to experience the resurrection when the Messiah came back. So this is really critical what I'm about to say. All this tension between these two groups, you speak the wrong language, we speak God's language, you don't, you're a cheap photocopy, we're the real deal, we're more spiritual than you, we're actually real Jews, and you're sort of mutts, and on and on it goes. All this tension and bias and it existed in all these people before they met Jesus, before they were saved, before they were born again. So watch this. This reaches a boiling point as everyone is saying yes, and after everyone says yes to Jesus. So you got wealthy people, remember, giving above and beyond. The average person at the same time is giving generously themselves. No one's in need. People are getting saved left and right. The Holy Spirit is shockingly, overwhelmingly present. But one group in the middle of a revival says, we're getting ripped off, and our widows aren't even being cared for, and your widows are getting all of this. And the other group would say, so typical of people like you. Now, remember I said to not forget the word complaining? Mm -hmm. It's really important. It's not just they're saying, hey, this is not fair. This is way more dangerous. This actual word is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament from the story of Moses when the people grumbled and complained against God and Moses' leadership. In other words, here's what's really happening. The early church, during a revival and awakening, Only three years old or less is about to split and fracture along language and ethnic lines. Everyone ready? Every time there's an us versus them attitude in a church, prepare for the beginning of the end. What happened to the unity? What happened to the one mind and there was no one in need? And again, I just want to remind you, the complaining and bitterness and feeling slated, it's all happening, what? Slighted. Is all happening when? Uh, during a revival, not after. Now, the leadership hears about this problem and deals with this very profound, dangerous issue administratively, organizationally, and spiritually. And so they begin to outline to us why, in the middle of great moves of God, administration, planning, and gift based ministry is key. Everyone ready? To long term sustainability beyond the season or exciting moment of a renewal or revival. Verse 2, chapter 6, so the twelve gathered. So that's like Peter, James, John, Thomas, right? Levi, Matthew, that is. They all gather the disciples together. And then they say these words. And I just, every time I read this, I smile. So the twelve gather in the middle of this whole fight. And they say, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Okay. 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 Uh, Okay. Modern translation. We're not actually going to help any widows as the senior leaders of the church. Not our problem. Excuse me? Can you, okay, can you imagine saying this in 2023? Yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian pastor, but I'm not really interested in helping the poor and the widows. We would be saying, you're so arrogant, you're so freaking prideful, you don't want to serve widows. What kind, are you even a Christian? You call yourself a Christian leader? Can you imagine what would happen on social media? Time to expose these toxic, arrogant, let's cancel these leaders. Mm, they understand something so profoundly important. As you grow, you must adjust. As you grow, you must give up more influence to get more done. And as you grow, you must work more and more out of your calling and more and more out of your spiritual gifts. You must spend almost most, not all, all, most of your time in the area of spiritual gifts. And they say it would be wrong. It would not be right. It's borderline sinful for us to deal with these widows in this issue because if we do that, we actually will stop praying and teaching and preaching. We have to lead in any time, but especially during a move of God through preaching and teaching first and foremost, because, oh, right, preaching and teaching is the rudder to make sure the movement remains pure. It's the way, actually, we keep most of the leaves out of the pool. 2 Timothy 3.16. What's the Bible? Oh, yeah, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness, so all the servants of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Oh, here's a really important lesson. When God moves the strongest, when God does the most unusual, when the weird things start happening that are from God, that's when preaching even becomes more important. We lead from the Word of God as the ultimate source of faith, life, and practice. And they say it would be wrong for us to serve, not within our spiritual gifts, the only guaranteed place of power from heaven. And and here it is. Here we go again. Gift-based ministry is centralized here. But they're about to go farther they also need to say we need to pray and we need to use our spiritual gifts but we also need sustainable strategies and character to make sure this thing doesn't crack so then they say brothers and sisters choose seven men from among you who you know are to be full of the who are full of the holy spirit and full of wisdom now something forms here that hasn't existed yet it's a new office not a gift an office in the church called a deacon and the first criteria is they must be full of the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, of course, John. Full of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, full of the Holy Spirit, power gifts and healing and, and exercise. No, character. I mean, Paul later writes about this near the end of his run when he says in 1 Timothy 3 in the same way deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain, they must keep hold of the deep truth of the faith with a clear conscience. They need to be tested. And then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, temperate, trustworthy, and everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and household well. Now, Growing in character, before title, growing in character to handle spiritual gifts, growing in character, which is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which allows us to use the gifts of the Spirit well. I love what Abraham Lincoln once said when he said, character is like a tree. Reputation is like a shadow. The shadow is what we think of, but the tree actually is the real thing. Now, interestingly, if you read the rest of the New Testament, we see that uh, deacons' roles are not just reserved to what we see in Acts. Deacons go and found churches, they evangelize, they cast out demons, they break all sorts of ethnic and racial and gender barriers. And interesting, if you read Romans 16, deacons are both men and women. But as the deacons are being formed, and they're dealing with this very dangerous clash, two spiritual gifts float to the surface in the deacon experience. One of them is the spiritual gift of administration. The other one is the spiritual gift of mercy. Now, I've done this before, let me do it again. Administration... Uh, is is a profoundly important spiritual gift, but it's not a leadership gift from a biblical standpoint or a teaching gift. Let me break that down. A lot of people get confused about this. The spiritual gift of leadership actually is where you are going. That's how it's defined. We're not talking about influence. We all influence people. So we're all leaders in the sense, of course, we all influence people. But the spiritual gift of leadership is about vision and destination. Lots of people who actually have lots of leadership ability don't actually have the spiritual gift of leadership. They might have the spiritual gift of administration. See, the spiritual gift about leadership is vision, movement, the God-given future. Well, this gift is supporting the vision. If you have this gift, but you actually don't support what God has given through the gift of leadership, you always end up perpetually frustrated or actually causing a lot of damage. The where is not your call. It's the how. That's why this is also called the gift of guidance or wise counsel. Dave, when he used to be on our staff, used to say this all the time. If we're all going to Vancouver, that's a leadership decision. We're going to Vancouver. The question, are we going to drive, or are we going to fly, or are we going to walk, or are we going to take a train, or all of them, becomes an administration question. It's interesting when Paul talks about uh, this gift in his passages, he uses a nautical term, and it's actually called uh, the helmsman. And one person put it like this, a helmsman stands between the owner of the ship and the crew. The owner of the ship makes a basic decision. What's the purpose of the voyage? Where's the ship going? What are we gonna do after we arrive there? But the helmsman gets it from A to B. We see this spiritual gift of administration flourish in the deacons at this moment. But also we see the gift of mercy. Here's a great definition that I found years ago about the spiritual gift of mercy. The gift of mercy refers to the capacity to feel sympathy for those in need especially suffering people and to manifest this sympathy in practical helpful ways with a cheerful spirit and encouraging and helping those in need in other words you know you have the spiritual gift of mercy when someone's really broken or a situation is really messy or someone's emotionally bleeding all over the ground and everyone's like ah, i want to get away you're like i can't wait to sit with that broken person i love sitting in broken environments i love encouraging people in Jesus' name when everything's falling apart i feel god's joy When everyone's running away and you're running towards the blood, good sign you might have mercy. Here's what happens during this renewal, revival, awakening. The leaders of the church say, okay, we understand that the spiritual gifts have been distributed wisely by the Spirit. So let's empower another group of people with a growing evidence of character, and let's empower them to be free in their areas of gifts, such as mercy and administration, and then we will actually be empowered in our areas of gifts, leadership, teaching, prayer, and we can all get on with this. We will, verse 3, turn this responsibility over to them. We'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now, this is very important. Everyone lean in, please. If you've heard me teach this a thousand times, please hear this next part. This is not saying that preaching and prayer are more important than mercy or administration. There is not some weird spiritual class system being set up as they're literally trying to break down an ethnic class system. This is also not saying that the apostles never were merciful or never actually cared for the poor or helped the poor. Of course they did because all Christians are called into this discipline. But here's their real point. For the sustainability of the movement in a revival and beyond, leading and serving out of the gifts becomes the ballgame. And they say we will preach and then of course we will pray. Okay, okay, okay. Prayer is key. These leaders must continue to pray for three reasons. Number one, The more any Christian prays, let alone a Christian leader, the more they're changed. You you can't keep walking into God's presence and not be touched by his love and holiness. The more you sit with him, the more you're changed by him. We always need, every Christian, but especially leaders, to be marked by God. Second, this is critical because this is happening, right? Renewal, revival, awakening. The leaders are saying, we actually have to ask the Holy Spirit in prayer what he wants us to do next during this crazy move. Jesus is our model. We talk about this at Sanctus all the time. Jesus always went away during these types of moments, by the way. Listened, prayed, got marching orders by the Father, you, and then right, walked in the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, I do nothing except what the Father tells me to do. Prompting always led to the plan. So they're saying, if we actually start helping all these widows and dealing with this issue, we won't even hear what the Holy Spirit wants us to do next. Thirdly, they needed to fight for the church. They needed to stand in the gap for the church. They needed to intercede for the church. One of the great roles of Christian leaders is standing in the gap and asking God to defend the church. This is one of the great ways we keep getting the leaves out of the pool so the filter doesn't get clogged and the thing doesn't blow up. This is how Samuel put it. Generations earlier in 1 Samuel 12, As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against God By failing to pray for you. Oh, and then I will teach you the way that is good and right. Do you notice it? Prayer, intercession, teaching. Well, the story keeps unfolding like this. The proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenius and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. So they picked seven men to do this. Now, What's wild, if you read it closely, is all seven of them are Hellenists. All seven of them actually come from the offended party, and they're like, actually, we want to take care of everybody. And not only that, what's even more interesting is Nicholas is not even Jewish. He's a convert to Judaism, and then as he becomes a convert, he realizes Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah, and he becomes a Christian because Jesus fulfills the whole deal. And what we see now in the leadership is the beginning seeds of what God is going to do across, across, uh, across the whole movement. Uh, G- Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew or non-Jew, or slave or free, or male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Those distinctions don't disappear. They just don't have the same power they used to. Well, verse 6, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed, laid their hands on them, and the... W- oh, oh, incredible. Out of the administrative call, out of the spiritual gift call, uh, ready, the word of God spread... And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Another awakening moment. So, one of the great questions we have to ask in any season is this When you're living somewhere between Acts 2 and Acts 6, how do you actually learn from this as a local church and as a community? And how do you learn from this so you don't lose anything you've already got and prepare for what's coming next? They organize, they serve, they pray, they adjust. Okay, a few things. Number one, all great moves of God and also all normal common faithfulness moments are all sustained by gift-based ministry. And I say it again, spiritual gifts are the only guaranteed place of heaven given power to do his work from. Spiritual gifts produce joy, they provide longevity, they build unity. Gift-based ministry is a factor in preventing burnout because actually when you use spiritual gifts beyond, a not, beyond acquired and natural gifts, you're accessing, well, that's not you. And by the way, here's what's really significantly important about sustainability. The gifts go where you go. This is critical. Not if, <laughs> but when the ministry of sanctus changes again and again and again. And when leaders come and leaders go from this church and then when other leaders show up and new ministries launch and other ministries shut down, we can actually all, this is, please I beg your attention. We can all breathe because the gifts are where we serve out of, not the ministries. If someone in this church, and some of you have, idolize a style of ministry, and you don't make the gift the center, but the ministry the center, when that ministry suddenly changes or shuts down, you're going to become angry. Stop! Don't don't prepare yourself for a downfall. The spiritual gifts you have is actually where the power is. not The, the ministries, the programs you run, need to be filled with people who know their gifts. And if that program changes or shut downs or evolves, that's okay, because the thing that really matters is not the program, it's the gift In the program, this allows you, ready? It focuses on us knowing our gifts. It allows us to grow in our gifts. It's guaranteed power. And it allows people in a church not to become unflexible, but flexible. 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 Do you know what your spiritual gifts are? Are you using them in this local church? Critical question. Critical question. Here's the second thing, all moves of God, revivalistic, awakening, renewal, or boring every day, always is supported by growing character. The the way to deal with pressure when growth, good or bad, comes, the way to handle the power of the Holy Spirit, the way to be open to give up more authority or power like the apostles did, and to let things go, is to be filled by the Holy Spirit. It's actually to be love-driven, not fear-driven. And again, I've said this before, one of the most powerful prayers you can pray to become more and more and more filled like the Holy Spirit is pray 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast and love is not proud and love does not dishonor others and love is not self-seeking and it's not easily angered and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth. It protects, trusts, it always hopes and always perseveres. Oh, if I might, as we're coming to the end, I just want to remind you that all the drama and pain and anger that was happening in this moment happened and existed before they all met Jesus. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that make up Sanctus Church, hundreds of you have become Christians in the last 5, 10, 12, 15 years. And I don't want you to believe the idea that now you're saved, that all the stuff that happened to you pre-Jesus won't affect you now. There's this weird thing in church where we're like, well, I'm saved and and my life is radically transformed, so all that doesn't matter anymore. Oh, yes, it does. All the stuff that happened to us pre-Jesus, though it's forgiven, doesn't just disappear. This is actually where we have to watch the most in our lives to make sure that those things are being worked out now with the Holy Spirit and being healed. Let me ask you a question. How much stuff is going on in your life that's connected to pre-Jesus stuff and now it's in the church? And you're just not dealing with it because now I'm a critic. No, no, no. Start praying 1 Corinthians 13. It matters for all of us. Uh, Last thing. I just want to say this. Things can never stay the same on the ground when God is on the move. Uh, The vast majority of you listening to me hate change. It's true of all human beings. The vast majority of you hate it. Most of you view it as drowning. A few of us view it as surfing. Uh, I just want to say... And this is a great reminder at this moment in our history and in this series. Our mission will never change. Our vision, if, when it's accomplished, will change. Strategies can change at any time. As more people come, as God moves in different directions, as the devil reacts, and as our hearts react, we have just to be willing to adjust, be flexible, be ready to change, to be biblical and yet flexible, to serve. And I just want to say, the most dangerous thing in a church, but a church like ours especially because we're multi-site, is an us versus them spirit. If you're up in Port Perry saying, yeah, but I heard what Pickering got. Or you're at Pickering, you're like, yeah, yeah, but I heard what Ajax gets to do. Or you're at Bowmanville, but I have friends that am online. Whoa, stop. Right when you start using us versus them language, that ministry, that group, that leader, that connect group, just be aware in that moment of us versus them, it's not saying some of your observations are, are right or wrong, but just remember, we are one church with one mission and one vision and one direction, and the us versus them spirit can actually sabotage and break what God is trying to do. So we'll just pray a simple, but a bold prayer uh, this week like this. Lord, uh, though we're not in a renewal or revival moment at all, Uh, Though we are not experiencing awakening, this is a common faithfulness moment for us. We pray for the thousands that make up our church. Would we all know our our spiritual gifts and we would start using them? Uh, Lord, forgive some of us for idolizing or defending a ministry type. Help us to surrender that. Uh, Lord, we just pray that you'd grow us in our character and you do that profoundly. Lord, help this church to be flexible for this next run. And I'd ask, Holy Spirit, you convict anyone with his us versus them spirit to rebuke them, correct them, challenge them so we can be healed and move forward. This, this is what we ask in this moment together. And we're really thankful you love our church, you love us, and you're leading us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to the Sanctus Church podcast. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that follow button to be notified when other episodes releases. I hope you were encouraged by what you heard today. God bless and have a great week.